Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 375 and my conversations, multiple, with the co-founder of the Upstrike Percussion Project, associate musician with the Hong Kong New Music Ensemble, and sound art curator, Karen Yu. We'll get back to her shortly. But first up, Mizzou, end of semester stuff. We are currently in finals week here. Percussion juries with the students of previous podcast guests, Megan Arns, Julie Gaines, Cliff Walker, and Troy Hall occurred Monday, and they went really well. I'm also in the midst of administrative and grading duties for all of my other classes, which is going as well as those things tend to go. But by this time next week, when that episode comes out, the semester will be fully over. I look forward to that time. In the meantime, let's get to our conversations with Karen Yu. It was great to get to chat with Karen for this interview. She's had a very different type of career than most of the percussion guests I've had on the show. While she's still active as a chamber musician, her primary work is as a sound art curator, a job that I did not know existed until we talked. Part of what's fun here is that we get somewhat philosophically deep regarding what quote-unquote new music is and how that needs to be promoted, along with discussions about the challenges of different educational systems around the world. We also get into a lot of the usual fun stuff here. Additionally, Karen's on the show because she was a performer at this year's PASIC. She performed with members of the Upstrike Project on a work for the New Music Research Day. I enjoyed the piece she performed, a work that, while its origins and composer are from South America, has a deep resonance to her life in Hong Kong now. So we get to all of that and more in this conversation. One final note, this interview was recorded in two separate sessions while Karen was, during the first half, in a hotel in Canada with less than stellar Wi-Fi, and then the second session was back in Hong Kong with better Wi-Fi, but with an unnoticed imbalance in volume between us. So be aware of how the audio might change as this interview moves forward. Okay, enough blabber. Let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 20th and December 11th, 2023, and it begins right now. And we're doing a, a, a dual piece. I'm doing a dual piece with Eugene um, called Alochica 3 by um, Negri, this composer from um, Argentina. We actually uh, had this opportunity to do this Asian premiere uh, not so long ago um, in 2020 in a uh, cocktail pairing concert we did in Hong Kong. And we're very, very excited to be able to bring this to PASIC this year. Tell me more about the work itself, why why it fits this this particular uh, you know new music item here. Sure. Um, this piece is a percussion dual scored for a prepared vibraphone, xylophone, metal objects, and tape. The piece um, actually is titled after a poem by a Chilean diplomat, also I believe it's a Nobel Nobel laureate. A Gabriela Mistral's poem, uh, which I've trouble 
um, speaking the name of the poem, but um, the poem conveys a feeling of lost alienation and disconnect, um, disconnection with her homeland of Chile while serving aboard as a diplomat for many years. And um, the tape actually consists of Mr. Owls reciting the poem, the sound taken from the text and instruments. Um, we actually, as a group, found this piece really resonating with what we're experiencing in Hong Kong. Um, some of the people, a lot of people are leaving Hong Kong for good because um, they're finding the city has changed a lot and a lot of the things that used to be offered to them aren't here anymore. And so a lot, actually, many, many people have relocated. A lot of people in Canada, a lot of people in UK, and a lot of people in Australia. Uh, there's just people trying to leave Hong Kong and finding their new home. But also there are us who are like in the city, but finding a bit difficult to call a home because so much has changed. And it's a bit of the question of identity, but also um, still calling it home by name, but not finding the elements of home in this place. Um, so it's a bit of that. And we find it really resonating and it really represents what we um, see in Hong Kong and we'd like to bring that to PASIC to share it and also to, um, you know, travel to people here. As I know, um, PASIC has a lot of people coming from everywhere. So it's great to be reconnected to this piece because it represents us. For those who are not, and I'll count myself here, who may not be as up on what's been going on in Hong Kong, the items that you're talking about, are they a very recent situation or has this been something that's been going on for decades and it's more obvious i guess i don't know i'm not sure but uh, long story short um since the handover from um the uk to china in 1997 there's been drastic changes in the city um we obviously we call people we're, we call ourselves from Hong Kong, but the, the deeper question is what does it mean to be from this city after this handover? Because um, we still have the official languages in both um, English and Chinese, but also um, the uh, governance is different now. And there is the new national security law that has been introduced very recently. And um, there is this very recent political um, issues coming up uh, that actually has started way before it has got more intense since 2014 and in 2019. And uh, we're seeing that um, there are more restrictions in terms of um, freedom of speech, but also um, our freedom to, you know, speak speak what we have to say, or even some of the schools has changed um, that we have to go through a lot of um, national. So students in Hong Kong have to learn um, Mandarin, but also to learn more about the country and how they could be more um, loyal to the country, etc. So these ideas are new, being introduced recently, and we question is that um, has our values changed? Has um, our uh, cultural uh, relationship with China has gone deeper, really? And also, um, we're seeing a lot of people from um, different places in Hong Kong, but we also are seeing less expats in Hong Kong. So a lot of people are also leaving, uh, finding the city less interested, less in interesting than before. So what are the causes behind this? And um, I, I believe there's so many different answers. And right now, this is so hard for me to articulate, knowing that the national security law is in place. Um, I'm. This is the, as far as I can talk about it, perhaps. Understand that that issue. The, the development of the group 
of your of of this group is has happened during uh, is is more recent. I'm, I'm going to assume, right? We founded the group. Well, Matt and I had this idea of finding this group in 2017, and we wrote our first grant um, that year and actually launched the group in 2018 December. Um, our first concert was actually um, during a bunch of premiere of pieces by Lansky. It was a full concert of um, percussion quartets because there were a lot of pieces premiered in Asia, but not in Hong Kong, actually. A lot of the good work that were being done by Third Coast Percussion, so Percussion. And these works are significant in our scheme of things in terms of a percussion society and the scene. And we've never heard them in Hong Kong. So we decided to premiere a bunch of these pieces to bring them back here in Hong Kong. Since a lot of these issues have emerged, um, actually a few members of our group have left Hong Kong already. I've also, Matt and I have also been thinking what it means to be in a group that's like already in kind of in diaspora state, uh, whereas there are some members in um, North America, but there's also some members in other parts of Asia. Our group has become more project-based. It depends on what kind of grant monies and what kind of uh, partnership collaborations we do. And sometimes we'll have, we're very lucky to have Matt back recently in September. And we're very lucky to have Rebecca Lloyd-Jones from Brisbane visiting us. Yeah, a lot of these um, projects are barely, uh, it's fairly flexible, which is a very good thing because we all kind of have our interest um, around it, but we're not always um, available to be, you know, all about this group and doing all these concerts um, every year, having a season, etc. Maybe that is not so much what we're interested in, but we're very much inter- interested in bringing what we know of different places and bring them to Hong Kong. Also, um, educating um, the Hong Kong audience and educating Hong Kong percussionists into playing chamber music pieces because chamber music is less of a thing in Hong Kong. I have to say, um, it's it's a bit. It has been a bit of um, a difficult um, situation for us to advocate um, chamber music playing and uh, working with composers, working with living composers. Uh, also, um, having uh, cross disciplinary collaborations. We've worked with light artists. We've worked. With Sologist, um, would work with video artists, etc. So those are some of the things that we are very interested in, and hopefully, be able to do more in Hong Kong soon. What does it take to get you all here for an extended period of time? I mean, you're you you said before we started that you're you're basically you're here, then you're going back, then you're coming back, and so just to kind of what are some of the logistics to just try to make this happen? That you're dealing with? I guess going to PASIC, it's uh, quite a crazy trip for us. It's long. We're, we're talking about a completely different time zone. Actually, um, Eugene also has engagements in Hong Kong with the orchestra. So for us to come here, it's it's quite a trip. But then we're very lucky to be supported by the Hong Kong Arts Development Council. We have their cultural exchange grant in place that will support um, our trip to PASIC also doing this um, piece. Um, the funding structure in Hong Kong is relatively uh, flexible and that allows us to do these kind of trips as I've just uh, recently did a show with Ken Ueno in Toronto and also doing a small talk at UC Berkeley. Um, these kind of exchange that I am able to do is mostly supported by the council and uh, we're hoping to do more of these in the future because we see that there is um there is a need for us to reconnect with the percussion community internationally and PASIC is 
a very um, is a perfect location for us, and it's very good to um, see what others are doing, um, especially at the New Music Research. It's a yeah, the New Music Research Day. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a day. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, was very very excited for that New Music Research Day because it has a absolutely completely different vibe in terms of in terms of getting to know what percussion means in many different um in the spectrum yeah. of percussion and which PASIC is um is doing a very good job demonstrating that there is a huge spectrum of what percussion means in different places. It's great to be there for new music research as that's what um the abstract project is about. Um we're very interested in um doing new stuff, new works. Yeah, slowly kind of finding our identity in that. One of the other things that that's also cool with the new music side is that that's frequently a way for younger or more recent to the field people to get in, you know, because it's because it's much more there's there's a lot of performance opportunities and the greater width of performances happens frequently in this spot. I think percussion allows us to be in that in that research much easier than other instruments because it has so much different so much possibilities but also like i've been really enjoying seeing the, a lot of percussions i meet have different um interests other than just percussion some of them are interested in technology but different kinds of technology ai um interactive elements um immersive elements etc so these are the things that i make very excited to see in PASIC as well I don't know what to expect, but um, yeah, I can't wait. I'm going to keep my mind open and see what's there. I don't think so. I, um, I think it's good. Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, I don't really know what to expect because I haven't been to a PASIC for so long and it's like a post-COVID thing. Right. So I'm sure um, I'm I'm going to run into a lot of old friends and meet yeah. new friends there. Yeah, so I don't know what to expect. I can't wait to see you in person too. Yeah, it's it's definitely what I will say when the COVID year was, you know, obviously we were we were all home, but that year after um, was was maybe the, my favorite one because we were it's like we were all just away for so long that it was just like, oh, it's so good to be in the presence of everyone. again. <laughs> you forget how much you like getting to see people. I know it's probably going to be like triple for you, I bet, if it's been uh, if it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while and so this is my first trip to the north america after COVID. Uh, so it's been like four years at least at least and um i'm seeing that COVID has different kind of influence um to the people here than yeah. in asia and i'm actually uh, expecting to see that to be reflected in the PASIC as well um because there were a lot more shows canceled here than asia well because in hong kong uh we tried opening a lot of Things during COVID, so there were waves of lockdown. Like we're talking about five to six waves of lockdown, and wow. in between that, when things were open, um, we tried so hard to actually keep it open. So we're very lucky to have a lot of stuff not canceled, but under a lot of um, social distance restrictions. But here, um, I'm see, I saw that a lot of things were canceled and not being rescheduled, and that's very unfortunate for artists because they depend a lot on that. Um, rescheduling and hopefully being able to bring uh, what they were working on to it to life, but then that became all, not an option for them. So I'm actually quite interested to see what kind of changes did COVID bring to the percussion community as well. 
Karen, give me a summation of your percussion activities and responsibilities as they are right now. I'm in the founder, uh, co-founder, and co-artistic director of the Upstrike Project. I, I founded the group with Matthew Lau um, in 2017, and we launched our first concert in 2018. Um, I also play as a percussionist at the Hong Kong New Music Ensemble. I think that's it. I also take um, some percussion solo gigs and... Um, these days, I do a lot of performances um, that are not, not limited to percussion only, but um, I also do some theaters and um, dance-related research as well. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what I do as a percussionist. I also live a different life as a sound art-related curator. Um, uh -huh. I have this organization, Contemporary Music King, that uh, we promote uh, cross-disciplinary practices in sound. Um, and that is the main thing that I do these days. And um, as a percussionist, I kind of do like half and half in my daily life. Well, so we've talked a little bit about uh, Upstrike Project. So we'll move on to the the new music ensemble. How long have you been with that group? What what is the how does that group function as an as an ensemble? Um, so Hong Kong New Music Ensemble has been around for over fifteen years. Um, it's found by um, this violist who's an amazing. Mr. Shen himself, but he's also very, very um, inspiring artistic director, William Lane. He used to play with the Hong Kong Film One Orchestra and took a turn in his career, um, started organizing the one and only uh, new music ensemble back then. And um, today, I believe, is one of the one of the only new music ensemble in Asia. And um, as of last week, they were actually on tour um, in Hangzhou New Music Festival. The ensemble has been engaged in many um, different projects in Asia, but also internationally. And um, I've been playing with them since maybe um, three years ago during COVID time. It's a project-based ensemble, and I take a lot of um, opportunities in um, in some of the new operas that they premiered. Um, I've recently been on a Cantonese opera, a double bill project of two new operas by Hong Kong composers. And also a um, few of the projects that are involved with, let's say, a Lakma project, pro project, also some of the recitals that some of the players curated for the ensemble. So I'm kind of like, I'm up to try anything in the ensemble as long as I'm, I'm available. I also have wonderful colleagues at the ensemble that we keep um, playing and connected with each other, other aspects of, um, in the community as well. You had stated project-based, so does that mean that you're either involved or you're not involved, depending on the literature? I'm involved as long as I have time for it. I'm actually very much interested in what they do, and I love to be part of it. It's just that sometimes that um, I have this uh, almost full-time commitment as a curator. It's a bit hard for me to do that, but I'm very lucky to have amazing colleagues in the ensemble because actually few of our members at the Upstart Projects are regularly engaged in the new music ensemble as well. So we, we're very close friends and uh, oftentimes the ensemble would rehearse at our studio um, as we have most of the instruments. So instrument situations can be very difficult in Hong Kong. So we are very uh, we are um, lucky to have a lot of instruments, and also uh, we have the capacity to um, host some of the rehearsals that they have. So it's kind of like a very good working relationship with them, too. And I get to play the instruments I'm familiar with, but also uh, working with them. Yeah, it's a very good situation here. I would say, aside from you or with you, are, are, is there like a core 
group or size of the ensemble that is typical? There is a core group of musicians. um, Actually, Matthew is a core member of the ensemble. I know that core members of the ensemble take leads in curating a lot of the projects and also initiating projects. We actually don't only have um, Western instrumentalists, but we do have Chinese instrumentalists involved in the ensemble. And uh, they actually do take uh, up a lot of roles in the ensemble. And we are often engaged in pieces that require Chinese instruments. And um, it's actually quite amazing to be able to work with them because they come from a completely different uh, musical background. But working with us is like adapting to our culture a little bit and they are willing to try with us in fact that is um yeah that's that's unique about the ensemble and that's why um we're often engaged in a lot of um opportunities in asia as well you had alluded to the fact that instrument or space or both is a challenge uh there what describe some of the challenges that are I would say standard if you live in Hong Kong and are trying to do this kind of music. Space is um, expensive. Instruments are expensive because of the tra- um, the shipping. <laughs> the shipping costs yeah, right. are expensive. But we've been very lucky to have many great instruments because um, a lot of us have lived in um, North America and Europe and we we're able to bring back our own instruments. And so each of us in the studio kind of own one, at least one mellow instrument. And we were able to um, have marimbas and timpani later on as we um, built our studio. Um, our studio is rather small, but then um, we've been working around and like pushing stuff aside and trying to build things um, in the only limited space we have. And I have to say two of my colleagues, Matthew and Samuel, are very good at organizing our studio. Nice. So in the tiniest studio, we have five timpani, marimba, piano, bass drum, three vibraphones, xylophones. And it reminds me a lot of school. I feel like percussionists are naturally very good at organizing. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, so I'm very grateful to have them as my colleague. But I like to say one thing in Hong Kong that is outstanding is that it's very easy to transport instruments. Oh, Um, yes, because it's very easy for us to um, call for a van or a truck service to move instruments. So a lot of the time we're able to move our own instruments. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something that is unique in Hong Kong. And that's um, something that I enjoy when I play is that I get to play with my own instruments, whereas um, in other places, I'll have to play on someone's instrument. And I know that percussionists are naturally uh, very adaptive in terms of like playing other instruments. But um, there's also this uh, luxury that we have on um, playing our own instruments that we know the limitations. We know um, what is it to play the best sound on this specific instrument. And a lot of the times our setup can be made in our studio and shipped directly to the performance space. So I think this is what um, is very uh, unique to me in playing in Hong Kong, and that is different in other places, except playing on my own um, instrument my, that I feel familiar with is very important. And also, I would assume that at some point you can maybe find a place to sleep, or you just like sl- you sleep under all the mallet yeah. instruments, just just like put a little sleeping bag, and you're all set, or what? <laughs> 
Um, I'm I'm guessing we could, but um, so in Hong Kong, you can't really mix a office studio space and the living space. So you technically cannot live in a studio. Ah. That's illegal. Okay. But yes, yes. So like we we've been trying to keep um the studio as a workspace, and we're very lucky to host people coming in, doing stuff, and we try to make a home. We yeah. have a couch. We have a fridge. Yeah. But we don't have a bed. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so I wasn't far yeah. off, is what you're saying. <laughs> Not far off. And uh, the people next door are slowly moving out because we're a bit loud. <laughs> Hey, see, this is not the worst thing. <laughs> it's not because when everybody moves out, means we can play louder. That's right. Yes, yes. I'm sorry for them, but so the space issue in Hong Kong is kind of an unfortunate event. Yes. But um, once they moved out, we decided we could play louder, and we're yeah. we, we're not worried anymore about the noise issues, nice. and we can play with the curtains wide open, sunlight coming in, and no one is banging the door next next door and be like be quiet <laughs> nice well y- y- it's a workspace like you said i mean you're you're at work so they should be very very yes. of your time is what i'm saying yes yes uh, when we started that studio we actually had to schedule most rehearsals to in the evening yep. because we were afraid that it would be too loud and then slowly when i figure out people are like moving out next to us and all the units next door just became storage. I was like, this is perfect. We can practice symbols during the day. We can right. rehearse, you know, a lot of drumming during the day too. So that's right. absolutely fantastic. Now we're in a perfect situation <laughs> to have a studio in Hong Kong and we have the instruments we need. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually wasn't like expecting that when I was moving back to Hong Kong from uh Montreal, and um, I'm very lucky to have this situation and be able to um, have partners in the studio and where they come in and teach, and I go in there to do my work, rehearse and practice and stuff. Yeah. Well, tell me about the your other career. How do you even get started in sound curation? I got this role as an artistic director of this organization that um, I have now called Contemporary Music in Hong Kong. I started during COVID, and um, this is an organization that promotes cross-disciplinary practices in sound, which means for a lot of people that we do a lot of sound art, but um, we focus a lot on performance. Every year, we have a festival that's on um, sound performances, cross-disciplinary performances, where I invite artists of um, from different um, sector to join and to create with sound. And many times I would pair them up with other artists and um, they'll have a few months to create something um, at this space that used to be uh, used to be a prison, actually the old central police station in Hong Kong. So it has a very rich history of um, the, um, the colonial government during the 19th century. It's a very, we're very lucky to have their partnership and the support of this festival every year. And we're about to launch for the upcoming uh, edition that's happening in November. But we also have uh, many different kind of programs that um, support emerging artists um, doing sound creations. Uh, some some of them are composers and some of them are sound artists, but there are also a lot of artists um, who are just interested in sound. And um, sometimes they'll take out their Zoom and go record something and then um, do um, incorporate it into their, their own works. And um, I always welcome that. 
And um, these days, I'm very interested in um, sound art education. So what does it mean to introduce sound art and listening modes um, to younger artists? So um, I curated this um, camp and um, education model uh, to um, advocate uh, sound and listening in art making as a, as a means to art making. So uh, we have this camp, um, seven days camp, where they learn all these crazy skills using DAWs, soldering, building breadboards, and also to think about what can be sound art when we use sound as an umbrella term to cover a lot of things that relate to sound. And that means that allow us to think that anyone can be sound artists. And that means a lot for me because now if anyone can be a sound artist, then I'll never run out of artists to present in my organization. And um, that allows, when it allows anyone to become a sound artist and we have no limitations because anyone can do anything with their phone and we can call that sound art. That really opens a lot of doors. And today we have um, a lot of um, new projects coming up with different organizations internationally but also locally and to explore what it's what it means to uh create with sound and i'm still going to be doing that for a little while and i'm very um, excited to see what's up there uh what's coming up for me and to see it as a precaution is it really reflects on my own background and um my own experience learning um a lot of techniques and percussion but also using that and turning that into creating something new being a percussionist is actually very um, special to me that it really means, it, it, it seems like it opens a lot of different paths for us. And it doesn't mean that we have to be musicians um, 100%, but it means that we have, there, there's a lot more opportunities, possibilities out there for us. When you say that you put on concerts, does it tend to be interdisciplinary is that one of the ways to think about it or can it just be a standard western rep whatever however you want to think of that term i guess i don't know when i present uh works and artists mm -hmm. and their projects um i usually give them a few some directions and one of them being it's something that you've never done and something that will mean something to you and if they can treat that opportunity their own opportunity rather than trying to impress an audience are trying to present something maybe then they could actually step further out from their comfort zone um so i've had artists coming in with a heat plate and and just pots boiling water in the performance venue i've had people um just bringing in huge sheets of aluminum paper and uh, doing calligraphy on it and taking that sound and um, processing it. I've also had uh, video, uh, sorry, photographers coming in and started doing uh, video improvisations. At the end of the day, I think anyone can do anything in my shows as long as it's not burning the building down. And giving that freedom, it's what it means to um, provide a support structure for the artist to me, because um, I can present um, their, own, their ideas um, in a way that allows them to reach um, to have the full artistic freedom but also um i have a way to encourage our audience and community coming in and witnessing that uh what they could accomplish is um also very important i feel like i'm in this position in the in the middle trying to pull these two sides together 
Um, and to me, that is that also means that I'm able to build a community of that. And that ha- seems to be what I am very, very passionate about these days. When you're giving these directions, you'll you, you say specifically, you I would like you to try something out of your comfort zone or do you make suggestions or do you, do you say, here's the parameters. I'll, and then when they come to you later, you're like, all right, here's how this can go. This can go. This can go. I usually give them the limitations of the actual space because uh, sound art um, has this d- difficult situation that working with space, a lot of the time, um, what we think sound good is not going to sound good out there for sure. hundred percent. Any sound performance to me is site specific. So working with space is inevitably difficult. And I think the artist should know, like should know ahead that that could be the greatest challenge on a day when they move in. So that's something I can't change. So I'll have to tell them, look, this is a, this is to be a jail cell. And this, these are limitations is that you can't touch the walls because the walls were built in decades ago. I would also tell them that that might be your only limitations. Um, so maybe if you look into um, how to work around this and turn this into something that you want to do, and that might be the freedom you will you will find. And um, a lot of the times, I give them this uh, frame, and then they'll go wild with it. And sometimes they come back to it. Oh, can I bring a vacuum? I'm just going to vacuum some stuff here. I'm like, sure, great. <laughs> yeah. So I guess giving them that frame allows them to find their own freedom in the in that box. And I really enjoy that process because sometimes they really go out of their ways to find that. And for an emerging artist or even working artist, maybe something that's something that we need, me as an artist would find that unnecessary too, um, to find that opportunity to step out of the comfort zone again is um, very important for working artists, which I am myself too. How does your company do either couple things one is audience engagement and the other thing is finances what how does how does all that work um the finances part is relatively easy because i do most of the grant writing and uh we have operation funding from the hong kong art development council but we also have other project grants from different uh, funding body and partnership as well um we do have two festivals a year funded by different partners but also we have a regular uh, concert series in partnership with other institutions. So um, it really depends uh, which project that we're doing and uh, uh, how the finances come in. And uh, yeah, it's all dependable these days and hard to predict and hard to call it sustainable, unfortunately, because we don't have a, um, we don't have a philanthropy um, culture in Hong Kong, sadly for sound art and for uh New music, new be, new new media. It could be very difficult, but um, it's the funding system in Hong Kong seems to be still generous and uh, relatively accessible. And in terms of audience building, um, I do a lot of audience building m- myself. So I go to a lot of shows um, regularly and just to check out what people are up to. But also, um, we have uh, we're constantly trying to engage different communities in Hong Kong to be part of our festival and events. So I try to get uh, people of, uh, let's say, if they are um, media artists, then I'll encourage them to bring media art friends 
over. And a lot of times the audience building is depending on where we're doing it. So if we do it at a gallery, that means we're attracting a lot of visual artists. But if we're doing at a concert venue, then we're attracting a lot of people who you, who are concert goers. But the question is, um, how are we trying to, I don't like this word, but market it. I tend to not um, call anything set anything in stone be like this is a sound art performance like i try to not do that instead i try to tell them what's happening and what are they interested in and many times um that seems to work better than trying to define what it is and which is a problem in a lot of programming music programming is that we try to tell them this is new music but the term new music isn't that interesting for a lot of audience it sometimes scares them away yeah. because what the hell is new music, right? <laughs> well, the, you know that there's always a. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt here, but there's always a thing with the the new music can be an interesting term because some people think that new music on the Western music side is like John Cage, when all that music is now like seventy years old, and new music could very easily be very pop influenced or or dance music influenced or. Like, and that could be, that's written two years ago and that's new music, but like, that's not that version of new music. And so, you know, that, that sometimes comes into play. I think so. And people are scared of new things. There are people who are scared of seeing new operas too, because yeah. they're not those operas where people sing out of their lungs and there's some kind of expectation associated when we call something, something music, yeah. uh, new, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that that's kind of is a kind of fear that we see in audience sure. when we label things. So I decided to label it differently or not labeling it sometimes and have the artist to de- define what it is. And the upcoming festival, I've I have this um evening performance that's called non-performance. And it it's interesting when you define something non-performance because it is in a way as a performance, but what are they going for when well, I guess that was also a question of what performance means to them could yeah. be interesting. And so I guess um, I'm trying to uh, not label things, but also have um, a lot of different perspectives looking into um, this uh, this subject where it could be called sound art, it could be called new music, but can it be called something else? Um, another thing that I do is that I engage other media partners. Um, to have a different perspective on the stuff that we do. Um, so they'll do their own research on the subjects that we do. And because they have, they know the perspective of their uh, media audience. So um, I guess that also allows them to um, kind of provide a different perspective of what we do because we kind of geek out when we when we see all these crazy ter- terminologies and um, when we see all these crazy technology on stage but i think we need to also open it up for others to understand what this could be for them instead of us just like really um in their our own zone being very excited about this new speaker system but that's not interesting to them honestly (laughs) speaker system concert no no that's not it exactly or like all um I don't know, this brand new percussion instrument that's coming out. Like to them, it's really not interesting. It for us is very interesting. This well, this new um this new stardom that can do this and this marimba can do that. Maybe it's not so much of the audience stuff because they don't hear they don't have that relationship directly, I think. Right. 
And I understand when you say installation, like I, I have an idea because you can think that could be art space, uh, visual art, usually like not hanging on a wall, but like kind of, you know, touchable, I guess. And then it can be music and it cannot be music. And it's like, so it's like almost that term is like a better starter, maybe a way in possibly. I think so. And a lot of us need to recognize that um, our listening modes um, are so different from people to people, but also in different occasion are very different. Um, and before we advocate sound art, I think we should advocate listening. Um, active listening um, is very important. And as a musician, I am privileged to have that education and listening. But I know a lot of people just aren't aware. Uh, for instance, like there are people who can live with um, noises that are constant in high frequencies and without uh, noticing it. And for us musicians, from day one, we're very bordered. Uh, we're very bo- uh, we're very annoyed by them. And um, it is a critical issue for us, but not for them. So there's also this line that we need to bring back everyone in the same place is that uh, what noise could be, what music could be, which uh, as musicians, I think we're very familiar with. It is hard to sometimes remember that that part about the person next to you is not getting the same experience hearing something, even though we're there, because we we don't have the same concept of or in the same background. So it, it's it's like it it sounds like in your case, it's that's like doubled and tripled because you're not even necessarily giving people uh, an experience there. They have any they can even relate to other experiences, right? Yeah, I mean, when it talks about when we talk about listening experience, there are so many different approaches. Um, we sometimes approach it with a foot recording, soundscape, um, etc. But we also sometimes engage it with some of the some of the concepts from um, Murray Schaefer, for, for instance. And um, these are the things that are um, very much ingrained in us uh, coming from uh, music institutions. But um, there are people who are not aware that when they listen to pop songs, they are naturally drawn to the lyrics rather than the actual music. So uh, in um, in the camp that we do, we actually separate the um, audio, uh, so the music, the lyrics, but also some of the timbre changes in the back. And to really break it down for people to understand that 90% of the time we are aware that our heart is breaking because those lyrics our heart is breaking. Rather than you know listening for all these uh, violin uh, solos at the back and then the drum trying to build the momentum towards the chorus, um, these are the things that we listen for. At the end of the day, we'll, we'll also come back to these questions of, um, oh, are music emotional or um, is music uh, sometimes message driven? Um, these are the ideas that we'd also bring to our audience to have them think about um, what um, they what listening means to them. Oh, wow. See, now, now you've got me in a different headspace because now I'm thinking about all the what you think of like different types of music. They re- either require different things of the listener or there are different expectations if you listen to one style versus another. What I think of is like hip hop, people who are big hip hop bands really pay attention to the lyrics and that's their that's their way in. And as you're saying, like the, the rest of what's going on musically is probably is just not going to be as important. 
you could then, but I've always been someone who's been, I, I, I love hip hop, but I'm always much more interested in what the instrumentalists are doing. And then like, and then I like start paying attention to the rest of it. And that's like, but these are all these ways that people kind of come into that's like their experience. That's how they bring it into these environments. I think so. And that's why they find it so hard to get into quote unquote new music because they don't know how to enjoy it. They don't know what they're listening for. And if we could um, introduce these ideas to them through the music that they're familiar with, perhaps they could even enjoy more of the classical music, um, which has been around for so long, but um, a lot of people kind of just fall asleep in concerts because they don't know (laughs) what to look out for what to look out for in the Beethoven symphony they're not like us we're like into that symphony symphony but then for them it's like not relevant it's exciting but then it's like an experience only but how do they really listen for these things that we are listening for um I think that's also a key to um audience building is that perhaps they don't know what they're listening for but if they could try to listen for that maybe that could change um, their whole experience of music. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You make me think of, um, the marimba piece Mirage. So Yoshi, I love uh, that piece. I love that piece too. And when I, when I've played it, I always say, think of like a cartoon and try to, and, and imagine this is the music accompanying the cartoon. And, 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 and frequently they'll be like, oh yeah, I could, I was seeing, they were like, oh yeah, I saw images in my head. Cause you, you framed it that way. Cause that piece, that's to me, that's how that piece works. <laughs> Did they play it differently? Well, this is, I didn't play. I mean, this is when I was like, when I would play it and I would introduce the piece. So they'd hear after they'd hear it be like, I actually kind of, they'd be like, I kind of liked it now. I was like, okay, good. <laughs> you know? That's great. But that, like those kinds of things where that, like it, it's the reframing, I think, is is some of what, it's our responsibility as the performer to figure that out. I think so. And I see like a lot of, a lot of performers are drawing different elements to their concerts and adding a video installations, mm-hmm. um, adding other experiences and maybe um, seamless concerts as yeah. well. I think those are also the keys to, um, we're starting to think about what, audience are experiencing while we play these absolutely fantastic percussion music but then um what does it mean to sit there and listen to these music and how can we enhance that or how can we build more connections with the music without just having them sitting on their chair and watching us play i think there are many ways of doing it and i am it's been amazing seeing uh, people doing um videos at the back while they play and also some of the people introducing um and different kinds of uh, performance tactics and in different spaces um, upstri- at the abstract project we've tried uh, pairing cocktails with performances having the program notes printed on the can so they can drink it at home yeah so like kind of like introducing different experience so they would have a different perspective to these music that are you know assumed to be new music or whatever that is i don't know what you what you drink to rebounds be but you know we'll, we'll figure it out right <laughs> I don't know. So there's been some research on um, how um, frequencies can change our flavors. Yeah. It could sound more sour when we do Ray Bond, but more bitter and A and less I I like that. It's more bitter for A. (laughs) (laughs) Because the performer is bitter, so we can actually, uh, we can transfer it to the audience too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, that's a good idea. <laughs> awesome. Karen, let's back up. So where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Hong Kong, and I moved to um, Toronto when I was 15 and um, did both of my um, university degrees in uh, McGill, studying with IU and Brice. Um, yeah, so in, when I was finished in 2017, um, I moved back to Hong Kong, and that's pretty much it. Gotcha. Did you have family members in the arts? None. I have none. I, I I was actually pretty jealous of um my friends back when I was young that they had like a artistic family or they have um people they could look up to in their family being an artist. But uh, I kind of slowly found my way out to be um artist because I just kind of enjoy um expressing what I need to express through what I do whether it's a message, it's a feeling or whatever. And um, so I, the good part of not having someone to look up to in my family is that I do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, well, how did percussion or music for that matter enter your life then as the thing you want to do? Oh, this is a good story. So I started, um, I started in grade one, like many Asian kids do in Hong Kong. I remember my mom was wondering what I should be doing, what I should be playing. And back then, uh, Matthew and I were family friends. So okay. I remember my mom asking Matt's mom what sh- I should be learning. Yeah, yeah. And Matt was already a, a percussionist back then. And then she said, oh, of course, percussion. You can just, you know, you can just look up to Matt. And then... My mom had another thought because drumsticks are cheaper than any other instruments on the list. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's how um, I got started. And uh, when I was choosing my college, um, I knew that I wasn't very good at school. And the one thing I was good at that I thought I should, you know, gamble all my future in was percussion. So I might as well just give it all in and see what happens. If it doesn't turn out right, I'll do something else. And I was very lucky to meet Ayun, who has been very, very um, inspiring all the way through as my teacher, as my mentor. And she um, opened my mind to see many different things that I could do. Um, I have a completely different perspective of percussion since meeting her. And that's also why um, I kind of um, found my way to have split career and as a percussionist, but also as something else. Well, she's awesome. Uh as you know (laughs) as always inspired by her and um she's always very um she's always very sensitive to how we find things Mm -hmm. she'd always raise the question before we uh have that gut to tell her and um she's always very caring and understanding of um what we want to do and our limitations and uh what we can achieve she's so open about it um yeah, and I keep really good uh, contact with the colleagues I had back then. Um, I'm so always inspired to see uh, what my colleagues in school are doing now. Um, yeah, I think she really did a good job trying to push us through um, what we can do. Is music in, in Hong Kong a school activity or is it an outside of school activity? The music in school is more like, here is how you play a song on the recorder. And then uh, we did a bunch of that. And then there were a lot of competitions, choir competitions, um, orchestra competitions, 
solo competitions, but um, I didn't win any of that. I was not a competition player. Um, I tried. So I learned percussion um, as like an extracurricular activity back then. And um, because I had learned piano before, so I was very good at mallet, but um, I wasn't very good at snare drum until I got into college. I was, yeah, I was just playing orchestras a lot, uh, wind ensembles a lot, um, because I was able to sight read very quickly. And um, that still benefits me right now. Um, take, when I take up gigs that I, I'm able to kind of have a picture of what needs to happen already. That's pretty much why that I still enjoy performing a lot because there's so many unexpected things that could happen. And I love that moment when we're trying to solve the problem on mm. the spot. And yeah. as percussionists, we're all very good at that. And that's, that's addicting sometimes, just like being able to make this better, make yeah. this... By changing this one thing, we can make this so much better. We can make this sound so much better. And I really love that mindset. I'm really glad you said that because that's like the that moment. Like you could tell like a, there's like a charge in your body when you've like figured it out. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, and of course, you like you can't say share this with anyone. But you but in turn, you're like, this is the great. I'm incredible. I'm the greatest of all time. And then like, you know, you're just around a bunch of other people who are playing. <laughs> right yeah yeah sometimes it's just like one little like oh if i add moleskin here oh it works everything works <laughs> <laughs> and that's the best feeling it's yeah. like that's one thing this one smart little thing i did and it yeah. fixed all the problems <laughs> yeah so i need to share it but nobody actually cares right yeah exactly <laughs> you're like measure 38 that b flat i don't know if you that was magic and, and they're like i don't i don't know what anything you're talking about Exactly. And the best thing is that it only, it doesn't only happen to me when I accomplish something secretly, but also when I hear my colleagues playing really well, I'm just like, that sounded amazing, but nobody heard it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a full cut right after that, like, oh, we got to do that again. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, that was killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. At what point do you decide... Or is it decided to go to Canada? I decided to go to Canada because um, I wasn't very good at school and I find myself being behind. And mm. I'm a bit worried that um, by the time I finish high school that I would not have many options and I might have to stick with uh, things that I don't want to do. And knowing that um, I should be able to do something, but maybe this isn't the right uh, education system that I'm in, that I decided to um, study abroad to see what's out there for me because I find I wasn't very good at this um, exam situation in Hong Kong and knowing that I know that I could learn better in some ways but I was just not getting there it was always very difficult for me to study and when I got to Canada I learned that what does it mean to study what does it mean to learn something and what does it mean to want to learn something and I never had that feeling until I got here um, studying a boarding school, but also um, studying in McGill under um, these amazing teachers and amazing colleagues that what does it mean to know wanting to know something? So I, I would go out of my way to find out the answers to a lot of things that I was curious about, but also just try different things and let it fail. Sometimes things just fail. Things just don't work out. But how do I embrace it? Learning how to embrace that failure was so important to me 
uh, throughout these years because to be honest, no one's the best and also everyone's the best. But then um, knowing that I'm no one's going to be the best, I know that there's always room for me to improve. There's always room for everyone to improve. But before we get there, that how do we embrace that failure? How do we like fall in love with failing? And um, I kind of learned that throughout the years and I really enjoy kind of seeing myself doing something that doesn't work and then overcoming that difficulty. I, I gotcha. So it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but but that the culture of testing, I guess, or exams in Hong Kong is not necessarily designed to be for for that to happen. It's more about achievement versus what have I learned? How can I apply it? Is that, is that, is that am I getting that right? Yes, because the exam culture kind of um, filters out the people who aren't able to accomplish certain things, who aren't able to meet certain expectations. And that's not helpful for the people who are being filtered out like me. Yeah. Because they're forever filtered out. There's no way out for them. But instead of thinking of finding the best people who are being, uh, who are able to squish up to the top, perhaps the people who are filtered out have different different aspirations um, there are people who excel in the hospitality. Uh, there are people who do really well in in a lot of different things in life, even in sales. It's a difficult job to do. There are always these people who are very good at these things. They're not known mm-hmm. and uh, known to us, and they're important. And um, these people find their joy in it. And it's very important to um, understanding that Perhaps people are not going to be the best doctors, not going to be the best lawyers, but there are people who are going to be the best um, musician, artists, whatnot. Like there's a, basically a sounds like there 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 just could be a group of people who are just they're just on the outside. They may not be the structure or the infrastructure to kind of deal with what they can do necessarily. Not enough people who care about these people that are being filtered. The fact that um, many of the people who uh, did really well in exams uh, in Hong Kong, so every year when the results come out, there are a lot of these media interviews with these um, brilliant kids, but most of them would go to um, medical school. Mm-hmm. Most of them would go to a law school. Yeah. No, I've never seen anyone who would go to arts. Uh, most of them are going to business. Mm-hmm. And this is an issue because what about all these things that the lawyers and doctors and businessmen don't do. I, it seems like we need more resources to um, nurture these people that are not the best people out there, the best professionals out there. And actually, I think they have more potential than these lawyers and business people out there. Me and you sitting here, but also uh, these people we're about to meet at PaySafe, but also our students. They have so much, so many potentials that are waiting for us to unlock and to see. So on the other the other part of the education side, I wanted to ask you was, are is there an expectation to both to you you mentioned Chinese and English being the kind of the main languages. So is it expected that every, all people who grow up in Hong Kong learn both? Bilingual speakers are um, almost everywhere in Hong Kong. I think the numbers of bilingual speakers are um, decreasing because um, we have three languages to learn in school now, including mm. um, Cantonese, English, and Mandarin. Oh, and both. So there, yeah. So there are people actually uh, speak uh, more Mandarin than English in Hong Kong nowadays. But then um, I do find 
um, people who speak both languages in Hong Kong are excellent because they're very good at both languages. Yeah, there are not people who are um, able to speak some English, but actually a lot of people have the capability to work with both languages. And it seems to be, I guess why Hong Kong is an international city, people do come in and work with us, Mm -hmm. is that um, we are able to work with both languages and it's still the two official languages that we work with. Yeah. So is is Cantonese being that's is that the one that's being brought in more recently? Uh, Mandarin is being brought in recently. Okay. Cantonese is like the mother tongue of most Hong Kong people, mm-hmm. and then English is what um, they have to learn because of the uh, colonial period. And mm-hmm. the Mandarin is what's um, introduced by the Chinese government um, after the handover. I've actually learned Mandarin in school too, but um, we learned it to a certain extent. Um, And I agree that it is actually quite easy to learn as a Cantonese speaker. They do have some similarities and perhaps it's easier for foreigners to learn Mandarin than Cantonese because Cantonese is much more. It's more like a dialect where there are made different details, small details. Mm -hmm. But Mandarin is very systematic because Mm -hmm. um, the Chinese government has made it very systematic so people can learn it easily as they have many people speaking of different dialects in the country. Um, yeah, so Mandarin is uh, actually more widely used because of that reason. Yeah. It means that you can learn Mandarin easily, too. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> That's an issue about living in Hong Kong as expats. We do have a lot of expats living in Hong Kong, is that they don't really learn our, our language. Mm. That's why um, we speak English a lot in the city because there are um, a lot of experts who come in here for over decades and not know, not speaking Cantonese. It's very normal because you just you can get around without knowing Cantonese. Yeah, uh, you can go very far, and um, that's why we're very good in both languages. But also, um, there are people who began to question why these experts are here, but not knowing the language and not knowing so much of our culture living here because that's a privilege to be mm-hmm. able to live in that bubble in Hong Kong. And we have that capacity to turn the smallest city in Asia to be a bubble. Remind me again what what age you were when you first get to Canada. So I moved to Canada when I was 15 to finish my high school because studying music wasn't an option for me in Hong Kong back then. When I was in the school in Toronto, um, the school is very encouraging. And I remember they had a marimba one in the school. So mm. I was very lucky. But the thing is, like, I wasn't planning to pursue music because back then it wasn't, I knew from the back of my head that it wasn't an option. But then as I had to prepare for my applications, I noticed that I wasn't very good at many other things. <laughs> so uh-huh. I applied for different things. like. I remember I applied for math, got no why. I applied for um, actuarial science, but I also applied for music in McGill and a few other schools in Canada. And so I went to Montreal to do my audition there. Mm. That was the first time I met Ayun and Fabrice, my mm. teachers. I remember that they were very encouraging and Ayun asked me a lot of questions, not only about um, how I got how I got there, but also um, what I need to do 
if I want to be a percussionist. There were a lot of very inspiring moments already. And it later on, I got, I remember having more than one offer, but I knew like I had to go to McGill because of her. So I went there and then I did the whole undergrad there, but I also did an exchange at the conservatory at The Hague for a few months. Um, yeah, and then after undergraduate school, I was kind of like, I feel like I can have more time in Montreal. I just kind of like figure out what I want to do for myself because I already knew like I didn't want to be like a full-time percussionist or full-time percussion educator. Um, but I need to, I need to have the resources. I need to have a space where I'm comfortable and to explore what I want to do beyond what I have now. So I figured that I, I should stay. And while I was staying for my master's, um, I got into working with different artists, like um, media artists, kinetic artists, um, composers, but also working at um, multimedia lab, all this stuff. And that's how I kind of got derailed, uh, went to a different path, um, exploring what's beyond music. And that was sound for me. So backing up the sec, what was the those kind of those years before you you do enter McGill? What was that like just in terms of adjusting to a new country, all the things that, you know, just make that, that are just you living <laughs> through that time so you can continue on? That was a very good question. Um, back then, I was focusing on studying and also like graduating mm -hmm. because I thought I was in a very bad place I thought I was um I wasn't going to college at all mm -hmm. because I wasn't very good at school but when I arrived in Canada I realized that was not the case um I was actually able to I was I was able to do a lot more things than I thought Mm -hmm. I was able to study. Oh, it turns out I can I can do a bit of math. I can do a bit of science, and um, but in Hong Kong, I was very defeated by the education system. That I didn't feel like I belong here, or in worst case, I'm just gonna you know do a part time job and then like teach percussion or whatever. Um, there were a lot of um, worst case scenarios that I thought about, but then you know, when I got to Canada, options kind of opened up themselves so I decided I might as well give it a shot because um people I realized the people that are the colleagues that I've met in Canada were very supportive of you know people doing arts or people doing um other alternative career that are not professional careers but right. um that wasn't the case in Hong Kong. So getting used to that was very interesting for me, but I was very, very grateful that I was able to you know, get out of here and to explore what I could actually do and to kind of face that I actually have a lot of options and paths opened up. I just have to, you know, check it out and see if I could walk down those roads. Were there mo any moments of just culture shock new place new time zone new hemisphere like you know all that stuff where you just you're like you cl you clearly adjusted but you're like the first time like i'd huh any of that stuff <laughs> look i was 15 so <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah <laughs> 
So I was kind of like, whatever, I'm just gonna go and see what happens. <laughs> out, it was negative thirty it was negative thirty Celsius at the coldest, and I was like, that's like colder than my fridge in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> Your freezer probably even. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Maybe not so much of culture shock, but more like temperature shock. Oh sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's because people in Canada were really nice um, around me back then. So they were very welcoming. My teachers and my school were very, very welcoming. Um, There were a lot of, um, in fact, that um, they welcomed students to, you know, find help. They encouraged us to find help if we need them. And so that was the first time I actually felt like I was, my, my needs or my views perspectives were important in some way um to other people and i was actually more opened up and sharing since then so for me it wasn't so much a shock um maybe um i was just young i don't know if sure i don't know if i were here the whole time now that i'm 30 and i would go to canada and i will i be kosher shocked i don't know about that sure (laughs) but yeah, I think I was very young and too kind of like whatever, just like empty minded and just like open minded and go there and be like, have fun. And then oh, it was just very cold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. All right. When when you are at McGill, what's the um, kind of the what are the things that you you figure out that you maybe are good at on the, you know, on the percussion side with your study so far. And then the things where you're like, I really need to catch up to, you know, get to that level or the level of my, maybe some of my colleagues. I was very um, into marimba playing for the first two years. And then there was one day I just kind of like decided not to play another solo marimba repertoire anymore. Just like somewhere in the middle of year two. Uh-huh. Um, and then I I just felt like it didn't go anywhere for me. Like I was I was practicing I was practicing, I wouldn't say a lot. I practiced, mm-hmm. but then that kind the feeling of accomplishment when I was able to play that leg was kind of like it's like only there for a second, but it doesn't last. I felt yeah. like it isn't gonna bring me to somewhere else new and I wasn't very good at orchestral excerpts too I was terrible at it um I remember um Febreze were very honest with me telling me that I really have to work on my snare drum chops timpani chops because I need it and then I'm just kind of like but like it doesn't really I didn't feel like it will take me to somewhere else too so in the whole undergrad I was kind of like confused um just trying out different things and figuring out there there are things that I kind of like but not so much everything was kind of like in the middle so yeah I wasn't very good at many things to be honest and that's why I was kind of exploring what's outside of here but I don't think I would be able to explore outside of there without percussion though I think that was like the key to it yeah, so those are my thoughts. Yeah. It's interesting to hear about that you you weren't getting, I guess, the high maybe from mm-hmm. the marimba side. But it also kind of 
it makes sense, you know, with how your career has gone and the ways that you've explored that it sounds like you, you're kind of just ready for like new music and <laughs> sound exploration and all that stuff just seems like, no, actually that's what's, that's, what's going to bring me joy. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that the part that I enjoyed the most when I was in school was playing with other people. Um, that was like pure joy because working with other people was why the reason why I still play percussion, I think, because if I didn't feel joy accomplishing the fast notes, the beautiful sounds, then what's left, right? So I really enjoyed playing chamber music um, and new music, like you said, like timber music ensemble, all that stuff. But um, sometimes I get called to play the orchestra once a year, but those are times where I'm kind of like, you know, I just have to play it. I just have yeah. to like try. I just have to like write in the book that I did it Mm -hmm. so I still want it but then it wasn't like so bad because I was still with my friends I was still with my colleagues so that was still enjoyable I was starting to identify what are the nice things the happy things that I like throughout the whole process even though I sounded like I hated my school but I I don't I don't (laughs) I understand (laughs) At McGill, what's the is it is, do they have like music ed or is it all performance or what's kind of the expectation in terms of when you're done, what like what is there like a final recital? Like, like what are the things that they expect? Um, I think there's a music education programs. There there is there are some other different kind of programs that kind of like along the side of my program um it was performance focus program i think it was called something like degree but then also like orchestra performance in percussion mm-hmm. uh, we had to do one recital at the last year of undergrad and then at the master's level we had to do one recital per year so in total i did three recitals um when i was in mcgill that was the only requirement, I believe. But um, in the master's level, we got into more research-focused um, activities, um, seminars. So there were a lot of different side things that we could do, like participating as a research assistant, but also um, playing in different ensembles. You could start initiating projects, um, all that stuff. So the master's level had more flexibility, which I enjoyed. That. Um, I really, to be honest, I enjoyed the master's program more than an undergrad program because I had more freedom, but also I feel like um, I was encouraged to try different things um, that was being offered by either the people around me or the school. Among your time at both degrees, what was the split in terms of who you tended to take lessons from? Um, because we had two principal teachers. Um we kind of just separated the lessons into half. So we can do, we can study with Ayun this week and then Paris next week, kind of alternative. Um, and sometimes we'll bring orchestral excerpts to Paris, but also we would bring the same thing to Ayun because just that they will have different opinions. And I like that because um, 
I get to listen from different sides, but also um, decide what works for me the best. Mm-hmm. So very early on in the program, I feel like the coll- my colleagues and I were already able to decide what we need to do in order to achieve certain things because now we have all these things that we can get. What do we need to grab to do this? Um, that was very early on. Um, also, um, we had, I remember we had um, Tableau Ensemble offered by Sean, but sometimes he would just come in and just, you know, catch up with us. But also um, sometimes he would teach private lessons. So that was, um, yeah, I remember that flexibility um, in the school and that was very beneficial for us in undergrad, especially. Yeah. You, in in that time, w- what were the ways that you were seeing uh, Fabrice and Ayun and Sean and, and anyone else who was there? Um, like you could see them as professionals. How were they kind of showing you what being a professional percussionist is and, and all the different ways that that could exist? This is a very interesting question because the first impression I had was just like crazy busy. Like very very busy yeah. <laughs> always running around always moving here mm-hmm. <laughs> still true it turns out it's just hectic yeah <laughs> <laughs> right and um but um though it looked hectic but i kind of felt like ooh, ooh it must be nice to you know, do all this stuff here and then you're doing this there, you know, having engagements here and there. That must be very cool, very fun because, you know, I get to experience different things every day. So I thought that was um the cool part. It's just the less cool part is just seeing them running around. Um, That was a bit just kind of terrifying for them too because mm-hmm. sometimes we wish they were around more, but sometimes I felt like this is what, this is what the real life is. It's like you get what you need. Um, you do what you can the most as long as you feel like that's what you have to do. Um, and I feel like I learned a lot about that from them. Just that, you know, sometimes we just have to know what we need to do because we can't do everything. Yeah, so there were just kind of everywhere, sometimes here, sometimes there. Sometimes we get some personal, you know, time to talk about different things that are not percussion related. And those were kind of nice times, too, because we learned the sides of being a percussionist, a professional artist, musician that we don't get to know about while we're in school. Because everyone is just kind of like, I have to play this repertoire. I have to play an orchestra. But then I think in the professional life, it's much more than that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And it it does sound like though the good news was that you had access to them. Like maybe they weren't they may not have been like physically around, but it's not like you couldn't reach out to them if you if you needed them. It's just they were just busy and not always around physically. Yeah, and them being busy means that I have to know what I need from them. Right. I have to know when they're here what I need to do instead of, you know, just kind of wandering around because they will always be here. No, they're not. They're never going to be here. So 
I have to like grab them. Right. Yeah. So that was an important attitude I learned. And it's like kind of the key to life because they're the thing that you're going to miss out if you don't catch it. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I was always thinking about how when I was in grad school, there were the weeks where I would just walk into my teacher's office, just be like, I, I don't need you this week. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I, I suck way too much for, to me, for me to hear it from you. Like, I, I got it. <laughs> and then the next week I would, I would be ready. I don't know if you had that to happen, but that, that I was, that was happened a few times here and there. I think I had feelings like that too, because I felt like, oh, my standard of chops is still pretty terrible. So maybe I should like practice more before I have that lesson. But then the other part is like, my teacher know that I, I need like a lot more work on this. So maybe he could help me on my way too. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I guess. Yeah. No, that's a great point. <laughs> um, while you're like during your master's and also your undergrad, what was some of the, the lit you were playing both solo and chamber? I remember playing a lot of uh, standard repertoire in my undergrad and especially in the marimba and the multi-percussion side. Mm -hmm. um, the last marimba piece I ever played solo was Mirage. Nice. Talked about that last time. <laughs> <laughs> Great piece. Great piece to end on. Yeah. Um, in terms of multi-percussion, I was, um, I did play the Sanaka stuff. Ayun introduced us to a lot of percussion works with, uh, um, body bodily movements and also speech. So I got into that. And I also um, played not only solo pieces, but chamber pieces in that um, area um, of kind of French repertoire, but with speech and um, gestures and bodily percussion. One of the interests that I was uh, focusing on. So I played all of... Um, I didn't play Global Car back then, but I played Aphasia, I played um, Apogee, um, Coggle, um, a lot of that. But then, um, because I was still in school, so I had to play enough snare drum, timpani, and all that stuff too. I tried to, you know, keep up with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started commissioning pieces in my master's program, the level. Um, that was the time when I got into, I also tried playing some uh, drum set and a lot of chamber music, but also a lot of music um, by the European composers. I think it's because um, being in Montreal, but also um, Fabrice would always introduce us uh, repertoire from Europe. So I really enjoyed that. And, oh, and also uh, pieces by Philippe Lahou, um, who is the on the percussion fac sorry composition faculty of McGill and he's super nice. Uh, I really liked his pieces and he was very nice to come down to our studio and work with us on his works. And then in fact we kind of worked on some of the some of the revised versions of his older works. So that was really enjoyable. I learned a lot from that too. Yeah. Awesome. Um I assume that it was encouraged to uh, when you particularly in your masters to like, to, to both like interact with and 
um, commission composers, like to, to start forming those relationships? Um, very, very encouraging. But also, uh, I remember even in our first year of undergrad, our teachers would like tell us, this is what we do. We just commission composers. We just work with them. Um, we had composers coming in for every percussion ensemble concert almost. So it was already a norm for us to work with someone who is going to write for us and want to learn more about what they can write for. Um, and I actually made a lot of composer friends back then because uh, we were percussionists are like the only the only type of friend that they would have who would tell them every day about what we can do. And there yeah. are always new things that we could do. And there yeah. are always new sounds and new cool instruments that we have. So um, yeah. they always come hang out in our studio with, because we have some like chairs and tables. So mm -hmm. they would always come down and hang out there. Yeah. So we were, I was very used to hang out with them. Yeah. And they'd be like, can you bow this? Can you bow this? You know, yeah. they're like, what can you bow? Can you bow this? And you're like, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and they'll be bringing some, like, I don't know, junk from the street and be like, can you bow this? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. It turns out I can, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and then these days I'm like, don't tell the composers we can do this. Don't yes. Them <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. That's a, that's the oh other side God. right there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. When you finish, what's the plan, or what what do you what do you think is the is the next step for you after you finish your master's? The only thing I knew was that I was going to come back. Um, okay because my family is here and I didn't see myself being in Montreal or um, other parts of Canada yet, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that was like kind of my first reaction. And the last stop before I came back to Hong Kong, I was in Banff um, oh, okay. for the summer percussion residency. I think it was Woods and Rhythms, mm -hmm. um, working with Steve Shake and Michael Fasaro and more people. Um, during Banff, I broke my foot. Oh, because I was like, crispy. <laughs> oh, there it is. You didn't fall off a mountain, it sounds like, because that is also a possibility, right? You know, I tried to hide the frisbee part, but you know, people <laughs> began to know that it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. I tried to pretend I fell in the cool way, but I didn't. I just fell. I just fell yeah. while playing frisbee. Um, and so I went back to Hong Kong with a broken foot and suddenly realized that I don't have much to do without my foot actually. And then, um, I was a bit depressed not knowing where to go. And also I was a bit confused because now that my world is open, um, I don't know where I could go. Like no one tells me where to go anymore. Right. And then I just started to go, I just started going to concerts, performances, um, maybe once or twice a week, at least. Sometimes I would go as, as often as like three to four times, get to know people, but also know what people are up to. And that was actually the most useful thing I did. 
that period because I met a lot of people who are now my colleagues, my friends, my frequent collaborators during that time when I was just kind of like watching everything that was available to me with my broken foot um, on the crouch. <laughs> and um, yeah, and everyone slowly just kind of opened doors to me. And um, I was very grateful to meet a lot of um, folks that are like maybe at like middle of the career who are able to like help me out and be like, here, you could try the grad or here you should meet this person. Here, you should go to these concerts and see what they're up to. Maybe you'll be interested. Um, yeah, so I was very sort of grateful people just kind of like tell me where to go a bit, but also like me um, having to force myself to face that I, I have to see all these things and figure out where to go or if not, should I do something else? Um, and during that time, I actually got another job working as um, at University Advancement Office in Hong Kong for McGill. And I learned a lot of administrative skills, you know, talking to people, but also um, just kind of working in an office environment and understanding like what fundraising means, but also um, working with, just working with people from different worlds. Um, that was very important to me. And then I started, also started working, working in a restaurant bar. Um, that's how I got to, you know, learning how to talk to people, how to you know start small talks, but also telling people what beer would be good for you. What beer do you like? Yeah, um, and then all, learning all these beer knowledges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was um that was actually a fun time for me. Now that I can look back, yeah, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that period. Just kind of like doing this and that, but not quite playing percussion. So yeah. And wait, so that was that was still in Canada, or that was back in Hong Kong? I was in Hong Kong. I gotcha. So when does just kind of kind of tying this all together? So when does something more permanent than waiting tables or excuse me, bartending turn into what you're doing now? I stopped pouring beer somewhere in between like earlier, but I was still working in my other office job. Um, yeah. I stopped pouring beer because um I figured that I have more percussion gigs, so maybe I should do more percussion gigs. Sure, yeah. Um, one day during the pandemic, um, I got a call and my current company called me and asked me if I want to try this position of running a sound organization. I thought they thought that I might be a good fit, but then looking at my CV, I thought I might be too young, but I'm still going to try sure. because I feel like it, I'm not going to lose anything if I try. Sure. So I just kind of like submitted my application. I, I kind of knew the board members too, because they were very nice. Kind of got through all the interviews, my first job interview, telling them why I care and why, why they should choose me. And one day I got the position. I'm like, oops, now I have to write all these grants, but also I have to run an organization. Oops. But <laughs> I wasn't supposed to get this job. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to because I feel I was very underqualified. I wasn't, I didn't study sound. I didn't sure. say sound. I didn't compose. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know what sound art means back then, to be honest. Like I knew like 
it was like not music, but like not only music, but then like there's more. But that was about it. I know John Cage, but I didn't know every other people. Right, sure. Uh huh. In that era, so I was kind of oop, I got it, and then I spent my first year kind of like doing a lot of research, studying. Yeah. Sound art, but also like, what does it mean to curate? Yeah. And it was a pandemic time, so I spent a lot of time just kind of like reading, reading, um, doing research, and um, but also feeling very incompetent because I there are like people who actually do this with yeah. like an actual degree, but then I just kind of have to like ask the people around me. But very, very lucky to be in this position because I knew a lot, a lot more people who are kind of like me in between gaps of different areas mm -hmm. we kind of fell into that gap and under that gap is actually a whole new world because everything kind of just melts together so that was actually the best part of what i'm doing now all right well karen i finish out with a segment called random ask questions what's an issue in percussion performance or percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? A lot of the times, percussion education promotes certain kinds of aesthetics or certain kind of um, ideology that doesn't require students to realize that there are other alternative options to it. And oftentimes we think about percussion it's the virtuosity skills, um, the level of playing, but we don't think about what percussive arts could bring us to and what's beyond just playing, but the creative part of it should be something that we should all consider when we play percussion. Being more, more fully engaged in the, in all of the, in the, like the, the learning and sound and not just repeating like what we're being told that kind of thing yeah it's not about execution i think it's about creation mm. we sometimes we forgot that we're not just the player the pro the programmer to play by the music but we are the creator we have our interpretation of the music and that's very equal as important as the music itself gotcha that's great all right, next question, also not random, but take this wherever you want to go. Uh, reflecting on your experiences in the percussion world as an Asian woman. This is an interesting question because my teacher is also an Asian woman mm -hmm. and my colleagues are also Asian women. Um, I've never, I was very grateful that I've never had to experience racism in my studio because my teacher would never let that happen. Um so I, I was very lucky, but oftentimes, um, maybe I could say that as an Asian female artist, mm -hmm. um, oftentimes I feel like I'm a, I'm a token that people just call me up because I am Asian woman. And this situation also happens in Hong Kong that I often get called because I'm a woman. And oftentimes I would doubt myself where, you know, it, am I being called? because they needed somebody they needed the head count of you know we have this woman in our lineup that one woman that I'm, I'm always that one person 
And oftentimes I would doubt myself for not being good enough, but being called for who I am. But these days I stopped doing that because um, there are actually a lot of women out there who are great artists. Um, and being in this position right now is that I can actually promote um, artists who are not being seen because of their identity. And this is something that I should keep doing. I'm going to keep pushing. Um, I try to have at least one non-male artist in every lineup, everything that I do. Uh, as small as a thing that would only call for two artists, um, I would at least try very, very hard to have a balance of people from different places, um, from different backgrounds. And that's the most I can do at the moment, but it's it means a lot to the community that I believe in. Yeah, that's great. Gotcha. All right, uh, other questions. These will get a little sillier. Um, what's the most impractical item of clothing you own? I think the most impractical clothing I have are dresses. <laughs> like in general, just, just like just straight dresses, like, <laughs> like dresses and skirts, because I never get to wear them. Sitting <laughs> <laughs> there. And I never get to wear them. Oftentimes I'm like moving stuff or yeah. oftentimes I'm just like walking around a lot. So I shouldn't be wearing something like that. And then they're just like there. And then I feel re I'm like regretting every time I buy. I just like, why did I get it? I never. And then every time I wear a dress, people are like, why are you dressing so nicely? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> can't win, Karen. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Let me just wear this once. Yes. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. All right. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? I haven't been cooking a lot lately. Um, oh, bread. Usually bread. Mm. I think it was brioche. I was trying to make a brioche, but uh -huh. then brioche means that you have to work. In, we have to work with like very cold butter, but just like. Why did I do it in the summertime of Hong Kong? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? So it was like a real mess. And um, I stopped making butter breads. That was the last time I ever made butter breads. Yeah. I gotcha. <laughs> what, now, on the flip side, what's a, if you were to, like, if you have, like, a specialty or something you make, like, because you've made it a lot and you're good at it and it tastes really good kind of thing? Um, I make sourdough bread oh uh, so that bread's good you, you that one's yeah, that one that one only bread i make is good because i spent a lot of time doing research uh-huh COVID. Yeah. and with small kitchens and small ovens i like did a lot of um i made a lot of bad loaves but now i'm kind of like happy about it and then i stopped buying bread so i'm a nice. happy baker that one thing that i that one thing i make the only one thing so that's good what's the what's the key what do you what'd you figure out hong kong is very humid and warm yeah, yeah. so any recipes i read i read online means that i have to cut the time in half almost oh okay i didn't know back then or the water i have to adjust it be um depends on the humidity um i didn't know back then i feel like i was always failing because i didn't need enough but no it was it was just like the weather and the time that i need to uh live with and since then i 
yeah, I, I make a lot of, um, I kind of make breads depending on the weather. Okay. So when it's raining, I just kind of don't make breath because I know like I have to adjust a lot of things. But when it's a good weather, dry, then I'm just like, okay, I can do the same recipe. And I like the consistent, so. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, has Next question. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? I don't know. I don't know. I never really think about if anyone has nailed an impression of me because um, I feel like people change and I do too. Um, my impression of people also change. So I kind of never, yeah, I never had the feeling of someone like nailing impression of me. Yeah, it's very strange. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's, it's yet to happen is what you're saying. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Gotcha. Oh. All right. Well, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait to hear then. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Oh, this is hard. This is hard. There are many terrible movies. Well, I'm like a documentary person usually. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if I have an answer to this because. There's so many on the list. <laughs> so many good or bad or both? Good or bad and both. I don't really rate movies if they're like good or bad, unless they're like very, very bad. Okay. Oh, I just kind of forgot. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's a good, then what's a good doc? You meant you, if what's just give me one good documentary then. I think there was like a crime documentary on um, don't, don't, F word with a cat. Have you oh, oh, I'd heard about that one. I haven't gotten to see that. Um, that one was very good. Um, yeah, that was the first time I kind of like, wow, crime doc can be very good. But um, at other times, I'm mostly interested in historical documentaries like World Wars. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of watch anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. What's a favorite book? Recently, I'm reading Ocean Fong's um, fiction, but also oh. like his uh, poetry. I've heard. I know which. I I can see the title of the book. Your your the at least the fiction book. Yeah, the fiction book is um, Night Sky with Exit Wongs. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that book. But these days I'm re- reading a lot of Taiwanese um, poetry because I was just in Taiwan mm. weeks ago. Um, learning a lot of, um, I was reading one last night that was by a poet that was um, in one of the uh, political turmoils back in the 80s. So okay. there were a lot of poems reflecting on that. And yeah, I really enjoyed that book last night too. What's the name of the author? Uh, his last name is Luo, L-U-O, and then his first name is Ye, should be Y-E. I think he only had three poetry books, but then I think he passed away very, very young. Is that poetry translated or, I mean, I'm assuming that you, you, you are reading it in the original, right? 
Yes, yes, yes. Um, not a lot of poetries are translated these days, especially um, because I bought them from Taiwan and a lot of literature from Taiwan are not always translated. And mm. even if they're translated, there there would be different versions. And um, I think it's still quite problematic to translate poetries these days, unless there are like many versions of it, which you could compare. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't. I'm sure you've you've known about this 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 kind of idea for for your whole life, but it's always one of those things. I don't know that I I thought about until recently about why it's so hard to translate, or you know, because you, you there's like words that don't that are there's no translation for from one language to another, or or it's like you can't get the tone right. Uh, I mean, there's just like so many things. Like you say, it's just problematic. Like you can't you're not going to get it or it's not going to mean the same thing, right? Yes. Well, in fact, um, so when I was in Toronto, I presented this new solo work that I did. Mm -hmm. I created. Um, It was based on my experience um, doing public speaking in both languages at the same Mm -hmm. time. So I would be like, welcome to this. And then the next day I'm saying this in um, Cantonese. Yeah. And not only that was... That was not difficult for me, but the most difficult part is moderating a discussion in two different languages at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so that was just kind of like exploding at like that one second of trying to find the right word for like a certain thing or like a right scenario to describe one thing. That was even more difficult. And um, my solo begins with that, just kind of like telling people what my problem is but also then I start translating uh one word and the word is deliberate Mm. I was translating it between um Chinese English Chinese English and then at a certain point the meaning changes and through that um I kind of um I speak it to a microphone and have it um have it amplified through a snare drum through a transducer on a snare drum. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point, I just kind of play feedback with it instead of speaking the translations of it. That sounds super cool. Yeah, that because most that that was that's like pretty much what I do these days a lot. It's just like uh-huh. between two languages. And I feel like maybe a lot of people don't understand what does it mean to work with two different languages, not only like to speak daily, but also work with it. It's kind of, it kind of hurts my brain. I I believe you. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and like coming from, Nor- coming back from North America means most of my education is in English, but translating the, what I learned into Chinese was, not easy yeah and until today i think a lot of stuff i learned is still still kind of in english and i have trouble um i have i have trouble thinking in chinese sometimes i always think in english and yeah telling people what i want to say means mixing both languages together and so and that's way worse actually do you dream in different languages well to be fair i don't dream a lot Okay. I kind of fall asleep and be like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I think I dream of scenarios in Canada a lot. 
these days. Mm. Do you have a, a go-to karaoke song? Yeah, but in Cantonese, I think. Okay. <laughs> I go to karaoke quite often, and my friends are pretty surprised. <laughs> They're surprised. What, what do you mean? Why are they surprised? Um, well, because karaoke means like, well, usually karaoke means like pop songs. Sure. And like, sometimes they sing like, oh, you play classical music. You shouldn't be into pop songs, right? I'm like, I kind of love it. Yeah. Hits from the 80s and 90s, the best. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah I, I do go to karaoke very often. In fact, I'm going with my colleagues this weekend. Nice. Because it's like a post-festival celebration day, and they all voted that they want karaoke. So we'll all go. Nice. So when you go in that kind of environment, is it expected that you 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 have to sing like it like just and and do you have to sing solo or do, can you get away with like a group or do they make you go by yourself oh it's so a karaoke culture in hong kong is very intense uh-huh. you sing solo most of the time when you okay. choose your song people respect that it's your song <laughs> okay unless you want someone to and everybody's just kind of oh this is my song and then they'll just like grab the microphone and just like sing their song uh-huh. and the people around them usually like just kind of chat but like some of them will kind of be like also giving out comments so it gets pretty intense karaoke is serious business here <laughs> <laughs> what is the is the music selection in cantonese or or, or is, do people sing songs in english or other languages too um basically all languages because um the systems here are like an online system where they just kind of like download songs. Maybe oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah. And we can get them easily, very cheap. Yeah. I think the problem is getting the good sound system, but ah. it's very easy to get the song selection interface. I gotcha. Yeah, so if you want, you want one. What's that? I think they have an app on iPad too. Oh, something. okay. <laughs> it's all illegal but like it's there yeah yeah <laughs> so you could go and do like living on a prayer and it would be fine like like you could do bon Jovi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 you can like so you know there are those mics where there are the speakers at the bottom of the microphone uh-huh yeah yeah so you can literally just like press on the ipad and just sing on your own this is like because nice. everyone's like kind of all secretly practicing at home, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, that's awesome. Yes. Gotcha. Are you are, into karaoke? What's that? Are you into karaoke? I've done it a few times. We have a, a colleague in um in our department who has and he's Filipino. Um and 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 he's uh he's he has his own Oh, like, wow. but it's an older machine. He doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't plug into every system anymore, but, oh. but we'll like, he'll set it up and we'll all, we'll, all, you know, do our songs. So it's fun. It's fun. It is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all about fun. It's I, I, I yeah. And, it, it, and you know what, the, if you're bad, if you sound bad, it's even better. You're like, <laughs> 
Oh yeah, I remember having these contests of trying to、um, sing an octave higher of things、Ooh. or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's mostly like a drinking game, but also like we have these contests of trying to, you know, sing at like a different range. Yeah, or, yeah. Like、um, sing. Would each sing like one phrase, and if someone dr- like drops out or fails, like they have to drink something like、yeah. that. There are a lot of karaoke drinking games too. Do they do ones where they they'll just like, adjust the key upward、uh, to、oh, see、yeah. who, can get, who can hit the highest range? <laughs> Things like that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Karen, where is somewhere that you have you traveled to a lot of places? But where is somewhere you have not traveled to? They still want to get to South America, maybe. Okay. I've to.、Um, also, some.、Um, I've never been to Eastern Europe and、okay. the middle part of Europe that I'd love to see. And yeah, I think those places right now. Gotcha.、Yeah. Where in any is any particular place in South America? Um. Well, Argentina because we thought we were able to go before COVID, but、uh, we couldn't go. But um, Argentina, Chile, Peru. Yeah, we thought Cuba.、Mm. Yeah, I've seen a lot on TV, but we'd love to see it one day. Sure. Awesome. All right.、Uh, last couple. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. Any of the ones where you had the bow, like an egg carton, or you know. I like egg cartons. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Silly question. You're right. <laughs>、uh, oh. There was. I remember doing a solo back in school where I I had like solo passage on a quicka. Uh huh. Yeah. And it was all notated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was just like very confused, just trying to like. Not only the notes were notated, but the glisses were notated. Oh. Wow. So I had this video of me just like looking really confused, but trying to follow the music, being like, but it all just sounded like quick, 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 quick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that was the funniest part, I think. <laughs> you're like you don't, you know, you you don't actually need to write this. This I, I. I know, but I didn't tell the composer because I wanted to you know, be professional and be like, you wrote this. Here, I'm gonna play it. <laughs> but I don't think he has ever realized that if he listened to that, he had he'd have to notate it. I don't think he realizes that. <laughs> <Yeah> . <laughs> Precise with、yeah. all the lines in between the notes and the pitches notated, which I was just kind of like, I'm there played a quicka, but here I go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! All right,、uh, Karen. Last question: What one piece of art could be? Movies, music, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry. Anything has impacted you the most recently? There's a huge painting behind me. Just this one. This okay, sure. It's based on a 
poetry by um, a Hong Kong poet. I did the music for this poetry I composed. And then um, the painter of, of this piece um, painted this based on my music. Oh, okay. Um, I think I've seen that. I feel like I've seen that picture or painting or a version of it at least. Yeah. Kind of like, so I, so I, obviously this is an audio podcast. So I'm looking at kind of mountains and red and, and there, there are figures and like volcanoes. I'm going to guess. Is that, is that my right there? It's basically a volcano or a very hot place, a hot mountain with ice (laughs) in the middle. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I see that now. I think this painting kind of inspired me because this is the final product of the project, like the final stage of the project. Um, We started with the poetry and then I received poetry, I did the music, and then the painter received the music and painted this. The poetry, the name of the poetry is um, Turtle Jelly. Okay. Turtle Jelly is a kind of um, Chinese medicine kind of food um um it's good for people who are always you know eating a lot of greasy junk food uh really hot hot food Mm -hmm. cool our body down kind of thing but um the whole poetry actually talks about um fires but the different kind of fires there are fires who are like really um intrusive but there are also fires who are burning slowly kind of Mm-hmm. Just like there, they exist, and I to me it talked about um, passion is kind of like the little fires that are around us. Just yeah. like in, there's kind of like it keeps going. It's not going to die out. It can get as small as it can, but it won't die out. Seeing the artwork, I see a lot of um, people who are kind of struggling in the in the different kind of fires. Um, so there are people. There's a, person who's playing double bass at the mountain of fire there are people who are sleeping in ice but letting the fire to kind of burn the ice off but there are people who are holding an umbrella but in the middle of a pond of fire it's just kind of different situations but we're all um surviving in a way but we're also trying to live with it um even though sometimes passion is painful sometimes um Things that we are very interested could be painful to pursue, but we're still going to go through that pain to like get it in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the name of the either the the author or the the artist? Any of any of the folks? The poet is um, Chao Hong Fai. His last name is C H O W, I believe. And then his first name is Han Fai, which is H-O-N, and then F-A-I. Okay. And the painter is um, Ko Lap. So his first name is Lap. Sorry, his last name is Ko, K-O. And then his first name is Lap, L-A-P. Very cool. All right. Sitting here, I have to find a place for it. (laughs) That seems like a good problem to have. I guess, except it's, it's like very big. It's very, very big. <laughs> well, oh well. It's a problem. 
it's funny. What a lot of fun to talk to Karen for this interview. I wish her the best of luck in her sound curation career, in her freelance percussion work, and everything else. And I do hope that our paths to meet up in person actually happen one day. Would be great. This week's rave is the 2023 concert film Renaissance. This is a film that is directed, along with being written and produced by Beyonce Knowles Carter. Now in theaters. A few months back, I got to rave about the live concert experience of seeing Beyonce on tour. Feel free to channel back to episode 359 with Jeff Moore to hear more about it. And while I attended that concert somewhat with friends, we met there and sat together for a portion of the event. This time I went with my wife and more of those friends to see it in our local theater. And it was a blast. The concert itself in person was two and a half hours and the film was three hours. And I'll be honest, there was never a boring minute in either. I'll just go ahead and list some of my favorite moments from the film. To wit, one, like other concert films of hers, Beyonce spends a good bit of time going into the mechanics and production experience of the show itself. She says it took her four years to plan and execute this and the incredibly large nature and scope of the show bears this out. Two, you get to see and experience the songs live, which is tremendous. And again, this is why it's great to really see this in a major theater, if you can. Three, there's a bunch of cool moments with her family, including one where Jay-Z is parenting their daughter, Blue Ivy, after one of her performances within the show. And Beyonce is further explaining why she didn't want her daughter to originally be part of the show. But there's a great way that her daughter gets inspired to step up and get better at her later performances. Four, the precision of the show over so many performances lends itself to the movie theater experience. And there are these great moments where Songs do not break at all, but the costumes change continuously. It is a marker of the level of detail that Beyonce has in her shows and has always had. Five, one of the best of many moments in the film is a deeper dive into the black LGBTQIA plus ballroom culture, particularly from the 1970s through the 1990s. That is such a key element to this newest album, Renaissance. This gives those of us who are not as versed in this a greater appreciation of what she pulled off on this album. And lastly, there's a ton of great cameos throughout. Those you can check out on your own. Really, this is an outstanding film and a musical document of what was an incredible tour, and one where the artist feels more free and more at ease than she's ever done. Take the time to see Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, in person, at a theater. You'll be really glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. 
You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And we'll catch you next time for more of the interviews from folks that performed at PASIC 2023. Until then.